John 17, picking up in verse 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Thus ends the reading of the Word of God. Let's ask His blessing now in a word of prayer. O Lord, Your Word is to us lamp unto our feet and light unto our path. And so we ask now that your word would shine forth, that it would penetrate the darkness, and that we would see. Amen. I would imagine that if you've watched enough movies over the course of your life, then at some point or another... You've heard it said that a, that a good soldier never leaves a man behind. That's a pervasive trope in war movies, especially, and, and declarations of that sort are made or implied in many of them. This, of course, reflects a real-life ethos, so I'm informed, which is drilled into soldiers in the armed forces. However, you don't actually have to be especially invested in war movies in order to come across this sentiment. I most recently heard uh, the line watching the original Toy Story. Uh, you know, we watch things like that in my house these days, and the entire premise of the movie is, as you may know, that toys spring to life uh, when the children who own them aren't around. And near the beginning of the first film in that franchise, the, the central child's a little green army man go on a scouting mission through the house when the mother of the house enters the hallway, forcing them to freeze. And she walks through, she steps on one of the little toy soldiers, maiming him in the process. And when the coast is clear, they all spring to life, and then suddenly they realize that their, that their friend, that their fellow soldier is severely wounded. And in a state of desperation, he tells the others, go on without me. Go on. But in response, the commander says verbatim, a good soldier never leaves a man behind. And they carry him off uh, into a houseplant. Um, <clears throat> now, even in animated form, it's a compelling scene. Because there is something that resonates with us uh, about the self-giving love and sacrifice that it takes to rescue from imminent danger 
someone who can't save themselves. If left behind, the wounded soldier won't sur- survive. So, so others provide them with the protection that they can't provide themselves. When something like that happens in the movies, it makes for a heartwarming and memorable scene. When something like that happens in real life, it makes for a a, a gut-wrenching and inspiring story. I raise this notion because I would argue that something similar is actually taking place in our sermon text this morning. Here in the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, Jesus is preparing for His death which will take place in less than 24 hours. The disciples, when that occurs, are going to be left behind, mourning His death. And then, even after the resurrection, He's going to ascend to heaven, and they're going to be forced to live out the remainder of their lives without His bodily presence. Therefore, part of what Jesus is seeking to accomplish in this prayer to his Father, is to make sure that these disciples will not be utterly left alone, unable to defend themselves from the danger that lurks around them. He wants to make sure that in the sense in which we introduced it this morning, they're not going to be left behind. He wants to make sure that even if he has to go, they won't be left to the wolves. To this end, we find that in John 17, verses 11 to 16, is that Jesus asked the Father to preserve those disciples over whom He stood guard during His earthly ministry in order that they might be kept safe from the world and its rulers. Now I'm going to say that again because I think that's what this text is about. Jesus asks the Father to preserve those disciples over whom He stood guard in His earthly ministry in order that they might be kept safe from the world and its rulers. That's the main point of the text. That's the main point of our sermon this morning. And we'll consider that point a little bit at a time as we work our way through the prayer. So first, this morning, we find that Jesus asks the Father to preserve those disciples of His in the latter half of verse 11. Having already announced His departure from the world, in the beginning of the verse, Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in Your name, which You have given Me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Making His first request now on the disciples' behalf, Jesus addresses His Father, and when He does so, He uses a title for the Father, which is found nowhere else in the Scriptures. Holy Father. Jesus doesn't need to use this title more than once for it to be instructive for us. In a single turn of phrase, the Son's address to His Holy Father emphasizes both the Father's exalted transcendence, He is holy, and His near intimacy with the Son. He is Father. In other words, He is the sort of person who is simultaneously capable of granting a request like the one 
which will follow, as he possesses divine power. And he's the sort of person who is going to be willing to grant a request like the one which will follow as he is filled with fatherly love. There's significance in the name with which Jesus addresses his father here. And, and what is the request that he then brings? The central request that Jesus makes of his father in our text is keep them in your name. Jesus wants the Father to keep, or we might say preserve, the disciples who are gathered around Him as He makes this request. He wants them sovereignly and providentially secured throughout the events which will follow. They have fallen closely up to this point, and even when others have abandoned the cause, their faith has remained strong. Perhaps you'll remember the, the words of Simon Peter in John chapter 6, when some of Jesus' more casual followers turned back. When Jesus asked the twelve if they planned to turn back as well, it was there that Peter triumphantly declared, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. But if that sort of confidence and commitment was going to survive much Longer, the Father would have to actively keep the disciples. Specifically, the request is that the Father keep the disciples in His name. The name which Jesus says the Father gave to Him. Now to grasp the point here, uh, you might want to reflect back upon last week's exposition. Uh, because in the previous text, Jesus declared that He had manifested the Father's name. And we, we determined that this meant that He had revealed the Father's name in such a way that He revealed the Father's identity and character. Uh, because in the world of the Bible, the name is representative of the one who bears that name. So the name was given to Jesus and He carried it like a messenger and He heralded it to those who believed in Him. And the result was that certain individuals were united to Christ in such a manner that they could be said to be in the name which Jesus had manifested. They had become loyal followers who had received Christ's revelation of the Father with all that entailed. Jesus' desire then is to see them kept in that name. He does not want them to fall away he does not want them to be drawn to some other name. He wants them to be kept in the name. And the goal of this keeping, as Jesus explains it, is that they may be one even as we are one. The result of the Father's preservative keeping work is that the disciples will exhibit a unity among themselves, both in their identity as those in the name and in their function as apostolic representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will be one in their commitment to the truth and in the love of God which they have experienced. And it's in this way that they will reflect the unity of the Father and the Son who are at work among them, undivided by the tactics of the enemy. This is what Jesus wants for his disciples in the hours before his death. That's what he asks of his Holy Father. 
Now, we have tried at least to consistently note throughout our study of this section of Christ's prayer that Christ's prayer here is first and foremost for those disciples who were listening to Him as He made these requests to the Father. He does not broaden His focus all the way out until verse 20 of this chapter. However, Christ's plea for preservation is indicative of His heart for all those disciples who have been given to Him. As a good shepherd, as He tells us elsewhere in the Gospel of John, He determines to lose none of those sheep who are in His flock. And so we can be confident that even though Jesus' prayer is most directly for those who were seated around Him, we can be confident that Christ wills that all who are His would be kept in His net. As, as last week, this is another instance where the canons of Dort uh, memorably convey the meaning of our text in succinct theological language. Uh, speaking there in the canons of the preservative power of God exercised in the life of the believer, the third article under the fifth main point of doctrine tells us and if you want to look at this on your own, you can look at non, page 912, um, tells us that because of these remnants of sin dwelling in God's people, and also because of the temptations of the world and Satan, those who have been converted could not remain standing in this grace if left to their own resources. But God is faithful mercifully strengthening them in the grace once conferred on them and powerfully preserving them in it to the end. That, brothers and sisters, is what it means to be kept. That's what the Son is asking of the Father. And that's what the Lord is doing in your life if you have been brought into the name that was revealed by Jesus. Christian, you do not have within yourself the power to keep yourself saved. You are today as dependent upon the grace of God and His power to keep you in that grace as you were dependent upon Him on the day that He brought you into that grace. The, the same God who, who brings you into His grace keeps you in His grace. And so we must all then, because that's the reality, that's the way this all works, be exhorted to believe on His name, that we might be kept in His name, that we might be one, as Father and Son are one. However, returning to the immediate context of the Lord's Prayer here, we find in the second place that Jesus asked the Father to keep those disciples over whom He stood guard during His earthly ministry. That's the emphasis of verses 12 and 13. Beginning verse 12 we read, While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost. Except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. With this pronouncement, Jesus' request is now cast for us in a new light. You see, by asking the Father to keep the disciples in His name, Jesus is not asking for something fundamentally new. This keeping is something that Jesus Himself has been actively doing throughout His time 
with the disciples. Since the day he called them, he had been watching out for them. He had been guarding them. We must understand that it's not a new reality that Jesus requests, but what we might call a new administration of that reality. Jesus has acted as guardian up to this point, but He and His disciples now stand at a fork in the road. When Jesus is arrested, He's going to go one way, and the disciples are going to go another So so to return to our opening illustration, Jesus wants to make sure that these men, that these soldiers for the message of God are not going to be left behind. Clearly, Jesus was capable of keeping the disciples. He had not lost a single man that He intended to keep. But the time had come to hand that role over to His Father. Now, if you pay attention to the text, you'll... Notice that there seems to be an exception to Christ's ability to keep His disciples. Up to this point, they had all been preserved, oh, except for the son of destruction, or the the son of perdition, as uh, some translations would have it. The one better known to us is Judas Iscariot. Now, we must be clear in saying that Judas' fate does not represent a black mark on our Lord's record. This exception, when considered carefully, is actually only an apparent exception. Christ's own words demonstrate as much. You see, see, Judas was not a man who had been kept in the name, but was now out of the name. Instead, this was a man who, from day one, though the world didn't know it, had his own name. And that name was Son of Destruction. Uh, Calvin is helpful here. Calvin explains saying this, but that no one might think that the eternal election of God was overturned by the damnation of Judas, he immediately added that he was the son of perdition. By these words, Christ means that his ruin, which took place suddenly before the eyes of men, had been known to God long before. For the son of perdition, according to the Hebrew idiom, denotes a man who is ruined or devoted to destruction. Destruction was his destiny. Death was his fate. This was in fulfillment of the Scriptures. What Scriptures speak of such a thing? Well, we can consider several lines of evidence which point in this direction, but let's just identify the most explicit. Jesus has already, in John's Gospel, connected Judas's actions with the fulfillment of Scripture. He does this back in John chapter 13. There he indicated, with his disciples sitting around, that these words must be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's a quotation from Psalm 41.9. Likewise, when the Apostle Peter reflects on Judas's betrayal in Acts chapter 1, he will state that various portions of both Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 describe Judas's wicked deeds. So it was the understanding of both Jesus and His apostles that the Old Testament Scriptures spoke of Judas who was carrying out that which was declared by the prophets of old. As such, the fact that Judas departs while the others stay does not suggest that Jesus has a less than perfect record in keeping 
his disciples. Judas willfully played the part which prophecy had prepared for him. So what does it suggest? Well, on the contrary to that notion, this occurrence suggests that all men, whether believer or betrayer, get where they're supposed to go in the plan of God. Jesus is asking His Father then to continue His perfect work in preserving the disciples in days to come. And the impetus for all this is stated once again by way of reminder in verse 13, but now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. The reason that Jesus is now turning this role over, which He has stewarded during His earthly ministry, was that He was about to suffer, die, rise, and ascend. And knowing this, Jesus left them with a record of His continued care and provision through the teaching and now the praying, which He does during His upper room discourse of John 13 to 17. All of these words Jesus gave to them that they would be able to treasure them up in His absence and have Christ's joy fulfilled in them. Treasuring up the word spoken and prayed, they were to be filled with the joy of Jesus who ensures that they will not be left behind. That's one of the major themes of the entire upper room discourse. This was to put wind in the sails of the disciples in the dark days which were coming. And so congregation... The the words of Jesus here ought to give us all a greater appreciation for the care which our Lord takes in the carrying out of the plan of redemption which runs through the Bible like a scarlet thread. As prophesied and foreshadowed in the Old Testament, Jesus comes to save and bless the covenant people of God, raising up and restoring spiritual Israel, while at the same time, as Judas's example shows us quite well, using the evil deeds of wicked men for his own good purposes. Judas means evil, but Jesus is going to take that evil deed and, and wrench salvation out of it as he uses his death in the plan of the Father to bring life. This this all just goes to show us that the schemes of so great a, a child of hell as Judas cannot overthrow God's plan. And our salvation and security as disciples are not jeopardized by the plotting of evildoers. Christ guarded His disciples on earth. He provided for their guarding as He prepared to go back to the Father. And He guards them and us with them still from heaven today. Nevertheless, the ongoing hostility towards this guarding work is plain in verses 14 to 16. There, the logic of Jesus' prayer continues as we learn that Jesus asks His Father to preserve those disciples over whom He has kept guard during His earthly ministry in order that they might be kept safe from the world and its ruler. Thus, these last three verses of our text focus especially on the relation which exists between the disciples God guards and the world around them. We read in verse 14, I have given them your word, 
And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, for the second time in Christ's high priestly prayer, Jesus is pressing the distinction between his disciples and the world. In John's gospel especially, the world is viewed as the realm of sin, darkness, and death. Those things characterize the world and those who are of the world incline towards those things. Alternatively, Jesus has come to take away the sin of the world. He has come as a light shining in the darkness and He brings to His followers resurrection life. So those who have been kept in the name by Him have an identity, naturally, which is directly opposed to the world and its values. It's no surprise, consequently, that Jesus repeatedly and starkly here in our text distinguishes between His followers and the world. The existence of this spiritual divide explains why those to whom Jesus has entrusted the Word of God are hated by the world. Their reception of the Word demonstrates that they are not of the world. Like their Master, they are opposed to the world. They live uncomfortably within it, working against its core values. And the world hates them for it. However, given this is what we call antithetical relationship between the disciples and the place that they call home, the, the nature of Jesus' request to the Father might then surprise us. As he goes on praying in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. So for all the talk of the disciples not being of the world, in verses 6, 9, 14, as we're going to see again in 16, the keeping that Jesus is looking for does not entail the disciples' removal from the world. Such a removal is unnecessary because as Jesus has declared already in chapter 16, He's overcome the world. Instead, while they remain in the world, He wants them to be guarded from the evil one or the ruler of the world as He is described repeatedly during the upper room discourse. In short, Jesus wants the disciples to be safeguarded from the work of Satan who actively seeks to extend the influence of sin and spiritual darkness in the world. He wants to make sure that they will not become the evil one's instruments, as was the case with Judas, of whom it was said in John 13, 27, that Satan injured him. Well, we might say that the purpose of Jesus' request to the Father was that the disciples might not become prisoners of war in the spiritual battle which was raging around them. Without God's active preservative grace, they were goners. With it, the, the attacks of the world and the evil ruler of that world would come to nothing. So, so with Jesus departing the scene, in a manner of speaking, it was up to the Father to carry on the work which had been begun by the Son, such that Jesus' words could and would continue 
to ring true. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. With all of this in mind then, I would ask you this morning, are you of the world or not? It's important to know the answer to that question because your answer to that question is going to determine what you ought to think about Jesus' prayer and what you ought to do with Jesus' prayer. If you are of the world, if you are still in your sin without faith in Christ, not being in the name of God, then you must be exhorted to come out of the world. That is the place you must begin. Those who are of the world are under the influence of the evil one. And if you remain of the world, then your final fate is the same as that of both the son of destruction and the evil one himself. Both are, as the scriptures tell us, forever doomed to destruction and damnation. That is a fate which no man and no woman should desire. So this text would push you and call you to flee from the world, to run away from it and its fleeting desires, to shake off the corrupting influences of this realm of sin and escape the judgment coming upon it. So this text, for those who are now of the world, is a clarion call to come to Christ and find life. For He will surely give eternal life to every last one who receives Him and trusts Him for the forgiveness of sins. His death and resurrection have the power to break the hold of the world upon the sinner. So so if you hear this and you come to recognize the, the foundational corruption of this world, which cannot satisfy the longings of your soul, then hear the good news of this text that there is something better than the world. You can, you can lose your identity as a, uh, what sometimes the hymns call a worldling, and come under the life-giving protection of the world conqueror who keeps his disciples in the name of God. That's the message of this text for those who are still of the world. Come out of it. Live in Christ. However, if you are not of the world, I presume that many of you are not, if you are one of Christ's disciples who have found life in Him and life in God's name, then you should let this text stand for you as a reminder of your need for God's preserving power in the fight against sin and Satan. We are indeed in a spiritual war zone. There is a battle going on. The evil one is, though wounded, still active, and he still aims to advance the sinful causes of of this world. If you are going to remain unsullied, and unstained by the world, then you need to tap into the resources which Christ's prayer here to His Father affords you. You need to look daily to God, recognizing His protection, giving thanks for His protection, and leaning upon His protection. It is within the bounds of that protection that you can really relish the blessings of joy and unity which come from believing the gospel word. 
So, so having heard Christ's prayer for his disciples and for their keeping, let us as believers continue to renounce the world with one voice, with one heart, joyfully holding fast to the God who holds fast to us. Neither the world nor the evil ruler of this world shall prevail over Jesus' disciples. For Jesus, as Scripture elsewhere demonstrates for us, is a mighty warrior who will come with a sword in his mouth who never leaves one of his own behind. Therefore, hearing God's Word this morning, let us learn contentment and let us reject spiritual anxiety knowing that our Lord is keeping us and He's doing so from heaven at this very moment. And one day He will appear from heaven to take us to Himself on the day when His judgment of the world and its ruler is complete. Let's give Him praise and ask for Him to continue that work in us this morning.